Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. I had a picture of Ms in the 80s and he was a big strong weightlifting guy and then when he passed away he was kind of a a little skinny skinny old man this is life of the law Douglas Collier is serving a life sentence inside San Quentin State Prison. For years, he shared a 9-by-4-foot cell, 36 square feet, with his friend Tony, another inmate. Then Tony got sick. He couldn't stop coughing. His arteries were clogged. Months later, Tony died, one of hundreds of inmates who die in California prisons each year. In this episode of Life of the Law, Douglas tells us what it's like to witness and come to terms with his friend's death. Our story was produced by Greg Eskridge, an inmate and journalist with the San Quentin Prison Report. So one day, right before institutional count, four o'clock count, he was really quiet that day. He didn't really say a whole lot, which wasn't unusual. I mean, it's not like we were chattered all the time or anything. Um, and he was laying down, and it was count time. A cop came by and wanted me standing and, and wanted him to stand, too, and I gave Tony a little shake because the cop says, hey, have him stand, and uh, he didn't He didn't respond. So uh, immediately I shook him again, and the guy knew what was up. He knew that there was something wrong, and so did I, but I wasn't going to say anything. You know, uh, in those situations, it's kind of, you know, you just kind of let things unfold but I I knew that something was definitely wrong. So the cop hit hit his button. Uh, The lieutenant came around and was yelling up there, get a a gurney up there, or you know those plastic buckets that they carry people in. And uh, it wasn't probably 30 seconds the bar pulled open, cop told me to step out, they cuffed me up, and uh, immediately walked me straight over to C-section and locked me in the cage for uh, for hours, and I, and I kind of knew that he had passed, you know. I met Tony Ogle here in uh, 1991. We used to uh, work in a hobby shop together. He was a really fun guy to be around, and he had a couple of kids, I think two boys, and then he kept kind of close contact with his mom. And I asked Tony, I says, hey, uh, you want to move in together? 
a lot of times if somebody's your good friend, you really don't want to live with them. You don't because it just ruins a relationship. It's like uh, we're best of friends outside the cell. Well, when you move in with somebody, it takes on a different dynamic if, if the two guys are not really compatible. He was really a, a, like a really private person, um, but you know we were so close that I felt like he opened up to me more than he would with anybody else. And uh, he come from uh, a real old school way of thinking in prison. You know he was here in the late 70s, early 80s, where it was a much more violent and uh, brutal place to do time here Folsom you know he ran with a pretty tough crowd so he had definitely you know been down the river a time or two so it was that so to speak so he was like an old grizzled old guy I think the closest thing that I could identify him to would be they had a couple guys on Lonesome Dove really really good buddies but they weren't like uh, real lovey-dovey or real caring and they didn't talk about really you know a lot of emotions and stuff like that or family but there was a lot of love there you know what I mean it was just kind of an unspoken thing where you know in that movie one of them drugged the other guy's dead body after he finally passed away you know across a couple states to bury him exactly where he wanted to be buried anyway that was he was that kind of a person, and, and our relationship was was that way. As, as men in prison, we, you know, we're not big on, uh, you know, showing any weakness at all or having any sympathy for anyone at all. And, um, of course, those things are not true, but we never let any of that stuff on, and that's, you know, kind of how we get through So uh, we lived over in East Block for a while. After a while, he, I noticed that he was uh, having a hard time walking. This is like years later. And he's one of these guys where he wouldn't call a man down if, if, if he was dying of a heart attack. I mean, he just wasn't a doctor and kind of, you know, never let on when you're sick, never let nobody see you cry. He was really having some trouble. And he wasn't a complainer, so I knew that he was there was something wrong, but I didn't really think it was anything that bad. And he went to the doctor, and, and, and they immediately scheduled him for uh, angioplasty, I think they call it, when they blow your veins up and open them up so you can get some better circulation. So they did that, and he came back. But within, like, two days, he's up back to his old ways, you know, going to the hobby shop and laughing and joking, we're smoking and just normal stuff. It wasn't long after that he got really sick and he had been coughing for like a year or so and I used to always get on him, hey, quit with that hacking, man, you gotta hack all the time, man. But he was having a hard time breathing. I could tell that something was not right. And of course, he kept smoking and, you know, all that. He didn't, again, like, you know, we don't listen to anything. As men, we learn everything the hard way. And he'd rather just die in his bed. And he said that, you know, enough times. When I go, man, don't be calling nobody. Just let me get up out of here. I won't have to stand and count no more. 
back then they weren't letting anybody out. Lifers were not going home anyway. He knew that the chances of him going home were pretty slim. A couple of days before he actually passed, it was getting close to, uh, to Halloween. He started to become really distant and disconnected. He didn't, didn't hardly speak, and this was way unusual. I knew something was wrong, but I, he was the kind of guy I couldn't force to go do anything. He couldn't really talk. He was like incoherent, and there was, wasn't a whole bunch I could do about that. I had a picture of him as in the 80s, and he was a big, strong, weightlifting guy. And then when he passed away, he was kind of a, a little skinny, skinny old man. It's just completely different. You know, all white hair, real sharp features, you know, cheekbones sticking out. And the, the pictures that I had from him younger, he was just young, really long hair, didn't even look like the same guy at all. felt uh, uh, the loss for sure, but uh, I was just kind of numb about it. And I've always known that if, uh, if your bunkie died in prison, at least in California, uh, whether there was any obvious trauma or anything like that at all, you were, you were going to the hole until the autopsy came back and cleared you of any wrongdoing. So it's basically you're treated you're treated like you're guilty until proven not guilty. And I kind of knew that I was in for a, a stay when they, when they walked me over there. You know, you hear the door clanking and you walk in there. And, uh, you know, you know, you, it's not just, you're not going over there for uh, any kind of interrogation or anything. You're going over there because they, uh, they got to do what they got to do. I finally got a cell. Of course, it was filthy and kind of disgusting. You're lucky if you got a, uh, a set of sheets, you know, and a blanket. No pillow, just all really, just really cold, really cold and uh, punishing. I mean, that's the best way I can I can put it. You go from from a mainline situation to to the whole situation. It's it's pretty drastic change. No soap, no nothing to clean with so you're kind of like you're kind of creeped out over there you don't want to touch a whole bunch of stuff but I mean you're you're stuck in that box and you're gonna be there a while so it just didn't sit well at all uh, but but again in prison a lot of things don't sit well sometimes your dinner doesn't sit well <laughs> but you just you know that you know these things are out of your control and you just have to just kind of get through it the best you can After 10, 12 days, Goon Squad did their little investigation and uh, the autopsy came back and they took me down to classification and, and C-section and told me they were going to cut me loose. 
because there's no, you know, evidence that any, you know, wrongdoing went on at all. And when I went back, they, you know, of course they wanted all this property and and all that stuff. So I had to go through like his personal property, his his beanie cap and his ID card and you know, like his comb that he used all the time. It was just really kind of sobering. It was really, um, yeah, when you're handling somebody who's no longer with us stuff and it still kind of has their smell, you know what I mean? It's just weird. You know, the TVs were still on, the fans were still on. They've been running for like 10 days in there. It was, uh, it was different and I stayed in that cell. I lived in that cell. You know, I got rid of, uh, all the bedding, his pillows, and, and just all that stuff because I, I didn't, I didn't want it around me. You know, I just felt like it was a little too close. I painted the cell afterwards and, you know, cleaned it all up and it still, I would still like, uh, it's strange because you, you, when somebody disappears like that and after you've been with them for a long time, you're so used to them being in there that even though you're not looking at them, you can kind of feel that they're there. And I felt a little bit of that, you know, and then, you know, reality set in and I, and I knew he, he had gone. thought well you know should I have went against his wishes when I saw that he was getting um, sick if I should have you know gone against what he wanted and and uh, and get him some help if he would still be alive and, you know looking back on it I think it was over that's not something that I dwell on. The only thing that I really look back on and remember was his smile and uh, the way that he said, uh, you know, at least I won't be standing for count no more. It gets to be Halloween and I, and I think about him. I've lost many friends, lifers, cancer, a couple guys of cancer, Ricky Earl. Andy Levitt, these are all guys that I did a lot of time with. And they got sick and died and, and left with it. You know, Tony was the only one that I actually saw in my cell, but you know, the loss of a, of a, of a, of a good friend. He was a good guy. You know, everybody's got their faults, but I mean, he was, there was a reason I'd lived with him for so long and it was because he was really a decent human being. When you lose somebody like that, you think it's, you know, it's no big deal. Everything's going to be okay. But, you know, it's like uh, it's some of the weirdest times because we used to sit and eat dinner at the same table in the chow hall. You know how we're programmed. We sit in the same place. And yeah, one day I was just sitting there, and, uh, and I just started shedding, shedding tears. And I hope nobody had seen me, you know, but it was... I was, it was starting to really set in that, that, that he was gone and that there was a part of my life that was no longer going to be the same.
Tony Ogle was his name, C-11133. Last Count was reported by Greg Eskridge and edited by Jess Angbertson, with sound design and production by Jonathan Hirsch. We want to thank the journalists with the San Quentin Prison Report and David Jassy for providing additional production support for our story. Special thanks to Lieutenant Sam Robinson and Larry Schneider with the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Our post-production editors are Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel and Rachel Kane. Danny Bringer was our engineer. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, tune into Life of the Law on iTunes. We tell stories about the law like it is. Stories about block bosses who give out hugs and slugs, attorneys with 1-800 numbers and ads on TV at 3 a.m., and lawyers negotiating ownership of mineral rights on asteroids. Take a few minutes to post your review of Life of the Law on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, the Proteus Fund, the Ford Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a much-appreciated donation to pay for the direct costs of producing our episodes. It just takes a minute. Next on Life of the Law. Fortunately, I didn't have any time to sit in front of the television, because if I did, the TV ad was on every station, cable, network, nonstop, all the time for 10 days. It was, you know, carpet bombing by TV ad. (laughs) That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.